able to come here and speak to you once more um, and move this microphone back a little bit once more because I can't see my notes. Um, this is our home church. Those of you who know us, when we come to San Diego, we still feel like San Diego is our home. Been back in Northern California for six years, and it's just always great to be here and to speak and to give Roman a break. And um, I have very uh, warm, warm thoughts for your pastor. He is one of my inner circle of friends, and we speak with some level of regularity and just love his spirit. He is a dear brother, and I know you already knew that, but I affirm his pastoral heart. And do be praying for him in this season as he faithfully cares for his, his parents. He's a, he's a good man. God has graced him. This morning, I would invite you to turn, if you would, to the book of Hebrews. And I'm kind of following in Romans' footsteps. I know you all went through Hebrews not so long ago. And now you're in John, nearing the end of John. And uh, I plan to go to John as I'm nearing the end of Hebrews. So the Lord has, has worked that out. We did not collaborate on that at all. It's just how it worked, what he led on my heart and your brother's heart. But uh, as you recall in the book of Hebrews, uh, there's this incredible chapter that we just finished up north called Faith's Hall of Fame. And we spent probably, I don't know, maybe six or eight different messages going through these lives. And they were faithful lives. And, and they were the lives of those who were not unlike our own. They had uh, come to faith in Christ. And they had, or they had been trusting in the promises related to coming Christ and Messiah. And they believed God's word and sought to be faithful to that word. And in Hebrews 11, I think it's given to us that we're called to emulate their lives. There's much that we can take away from in terms of the normal warp and woof of living lives, this side of glory, and some of the difficulties thereof. Sometimes we face mind-boggling things, as in the parting of the Red Sea and the Israelites escaping after the plagues. There they are. The waters are piled up by the hand of the Lord, the expediency, the agency of an east wind blowing all night. And they go through in faith, believing that God would preserve them in that incredible trial. And the Egyptians, not in the faith, coming through and vanquished through those waters falling upon their heads. We have our own waters to go through, do we not? Romans going through a few of those right now. We're called to practice our faith in the light and knowledge that this faith practice is given by God's power. God will not give his people more than they can endure. He will call them all the way to a completed salvation. This is what he does for his people. And as we keep our eyes on him, as we trust him to do what he says he will do for us, by his great grace, he can use people like us to do great things for his kingdom purposes. And that is always a mind boggler for me that he could use me. Well, he can, and he does, and he uses you too. Before I go much farther, just to encourage one another as we see the day approaching, Andy, excellent first hour. Excellent. If you weren't here, you missed it. So here's the shame. Be there <laughs> next time and be encouraged. And then uh, Dino, your prayer. I was ready to cry. I mean, I was ready to come up here. Thank you, brother, for thinking through those words and blessing us with that prayer. Um, people like Andy and Dean and me and others, th these are the small things that God weaves together and makes our lives useful. We have need of these encouragements 
from these useful things, right? It is a strange day. Andy, you hit that loud and clear today. We need this content to endure. So I would like for you to consider the saints for just one more moment from Hebrews 11, people like you and me. And when we come to chapter 12, the focus shifts from them, from those guys to us guys. It's application time. In light of what they endured, all the trials, all the difficulties, all the hardship, we too may endure. So I would like you to stand, if you would, in honor of God's word one more time, if you are able. And I'll read the opening four verses from Hebrews 12. And this is what I hope to, by God's grace, unpack and encourage you with this morning together. This is God's holy word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This is God's holy word forever settled, given for our benefit and growth. I hope you're encouraged by it. You may take your seat. The theme in this text is the theme of running, of exertion racing, if you will, from start to finish. It speaks to somebody like me in a very deep and warm, intimate way. Because since early high school, I've been a runner. And I've always enjoyed pushing myself and just seeing how far this weak little body can go. So years and years of two to four milers from young fatherhood until my probably early 50s led to ultra running in my mid and late 50s. So I've done some pretty crazy things. Now I'm largely back to those shorter distances, but I have to say running has been a fairly consistent part of my life if I've not been injured, and I'm injured now, so I'm not running too much. But the benefits I've received from that discipline have been long and loud and encouraging to me. For me, running is a discipline. It's hard, but again, the fruits are usually good when you're not injured. But running is the metaphor our author employs for us this morning as he illustrates the life of a Christian in this text. You see, living the Christian life takes discipline. It takes training. It takes consistency, focus, energy, fuel. We need the perspective that there is a terminus, that there is an end in sight. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. We are told to run with the following posture of our heart. To run, Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, assured of things hoped for. We can hold this, keep this, know it to assuredly be true. That the promises will be delivered on. God is not capricious. He will deliver to his people what he promises to his people. We can run assured of things hoped for. We run presently in this day in the confidence of things not seen. 
Dear ones, the world will tell you that you're crazy to believe the things that you believe. We're seeing that ramping up to the point of the ridiculous in this current day. We can run with confidence in the assurance of things not seen because God is God. He cannot lie. It is impossible for him to do so. He will deliver for us. This is good news. We run in faith. We run with utter confidence. We run towards something, a brighter, better, sinless age. It will be delivered. It will be experienced. This run of race, this running of a race begins at our conversion. And you are like me. At times your growth is fairly rapid and encouraging. And other times it just kind of plods along, sometimes a wee bit in the doldrums. Nevertheless, there's still a little bit of headway towards increasing conformity to Christ. The finish line is found at one's death. When that last breath leaves your lungs, that last boom, boom of your heart goes on out into the storied silence, that last event will usher us into the immediate presence of our Lord. We will receive what the Bible says is a crown, a crown of victory. That crown is much better than the cheap medals and bright ribbons in my running file at home, infinitely more so, so much better. Be assured, if you forget everything I say to you this morning, but you hold on to this one thing, be assured, those who know Christ, who are faithfully engaged in the race of faith, they will receive a crown. They shall be gathered into his presence one day. They shall be marked out as those who have endured, those who have finished, and the victor's wreath is theirs. It awaits a crown has been defined in this way, an award or prize for exceptional service or conduct. It'll be awarded. In first, Second Timothy 4, it's called the crown of righteousness. In James 1, it's called the crown of life. In 1 Peter 5, the unfading crown of glory. That's rich and sweet and encouraging and comforting all in one fell swoop. A crown of righteousness, life, unfading, Filled with glory. That is the crown that awaits the blood-bought ones of Christ. It shall be ours. Christ will be the one who rewards it. He will be there to bestow it. Far better this crown. Infinitely more beautiful this crown. Much brighter than those worn by our temporal rulers. The kings and queens of this earth. It will never lose its luster. So our text this morning gives us some valuable information with regard on how best to run this life's race of faith and receive that crown and be found safely crossing heaven's finish line. We will be there, dear ones, one day. So my first point, verse 1, run with endurance. Those of you who like to write things down, I will try to help you. Verse 1, once more, therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Dear ones, these are the necessary marching orders that all Christian soldiers receive. 
And just briefly, I'll blow through here, and then I'm going to come back and, and linger on some of these slots. But this is the first pass, and then a more detailed second pass. Here in this text, I see this sense of accountability. That we're indeed being watched, observed as you were by those who have gone on before us. Those are the ones at home we, we looked at in preceding, week, preceding weeks in chapter 11. Faithful members of the Faith Hall of Fame, an exclusive club, common denominator, Christ, trusting in the promises of Christ. These, the text says, they surround us. And there's implication to be pulled from this text. We should be holy. We should be working up a holy sweat in our service for kingdom purposes, doing what we're told to by God's word, persevering in that doing, pressing on, even after at times we fall flat on our faces. Dust yourself off, make your confession, repent, get back on track. We're also called in this text to be familiar with the landscape, to follow what is derived for us as a course that is, quote, set before us, unquote. It's not a mysterious journey. It's marked out more in a little bit. We're mindful that this is a course that is designed by none other than God himself. Ephesians 2.10 seems to bolster that well to me. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared before and that we walk in them. There is a course for us, a pathway where there's work for us to do, to align ourselves with. And then when that work is all done, the course is finished and we go home to glory and our reward. In that opening verse, we see that we are his work, not our own. He has called us off and out of those old sinful highways and byways. And now we've been placed on the highway of holiness by the work of Christ. This is good news. Friends, we are his. We have been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6 tells us. We are no longer our own. We're called to glorify God in our bodies. You're not your own. And so we're supposed to race according to the rules of heaven. Not our own rules. And certainly not the spirit of this confused, insane age. No way. Return with me now as we dig a little deeper in some of these thoughts. One more moment to something really quite remarkable. We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. I like thinking about that. I may have shared with you in past years, I've had the privilege to be with you, that I've created a Word document years ago, and it's entitled, People I'm Looking Forward to Seeing Again in Heaven. And every time one of my dearest of dearest dies in the Lord, I add that name. I'm a little behind. I have to add a few the last couple years. But I think about them, and I think they're part of this cloud of witnesses that are surrounding us. They're observing. Uh, there's a context, though, before this little clause. It says, therefore, since those two words that precede it. And, and contextually, these people have gone on before, and they're with all who have gone on before them and those who went before them and onwards and so forth and back and back and farther and farther. Therefore, since 
We're surrounded by these dear ones. All these people that I used to go to and they had just as much substance as this piano. I could touch them and squeeze them. They were alive and warm and living. And now they're gone. But they live yet in Christ. And they have an awareness of my life and what's going on. They're surrounding me. They're surrounding you. It appears that God has given us some sort of insight into the doings here in this life, the lives of the church militant. I think they're watching us. Have you ever thought deeply about that possibility? I have and do. That your life, even now, even before glory, is currently on display to this great cloud of witnesses. And now, even as the heavenly audience, perhaps, perhaps, they're applauding some of our performances. They're groaning maybe at some of the other performances. Maybe they pray there, I don't know, for us and our ongoing and future and continued success or greater success. They're responding to the quality of our race for our great King, the Lord Jesus. Like a heavenly cheering section. That's really sobering to me. And it's also really encouraging to me. And it makes me feel very accountable. And it also inspires me to faithfully press on as the record indicates in that chapter, chapter 11, they did. They endured. And they made it. It puts me in race mode. I'm a competitor. If God gave that guy grace to do so well, then that same grace is probably available to me. I'm going to speed up. I'm going to get him. If you're a runner, you get it. You can call it pride. I, I call it seeking excellence. Maybe I'm deluded. <laughs> We're called to run with endurance. We're called to run without faltering, with all that we have, without quitting, all the way to the finish line. That's our marching orders. We're to run with endurance. Yes, indeed, life can be hard. And sometimes we want to quit because of weariness and our own sin. Sometimes our performance will be affected because we have poor disciplines. More on that later. Sometimes a poor performance will just be our own fallen human weakness. Yes, indeed, like one of my ultras where I, at, at, at 35 miles out, I, I was just done. I called my wife, come get me. I'm at Lake Hodges. I can't go anymore. DNF, did not finish. Another 50 running up. Actually, we ran down to the desert and then three miles of sand and turn around and then back up this hill. It was near Mount Laguna somewhere. And the last mile in, my body said, I'm done. And everything hurt. And I just wanted to stand there and scream. And these bright, cute, young things are coming on by. And here's the old guy, 57, standing there. He wants to scream to the heavens. And I remember I just prayed, Lord, just please let me just walk back on my own power. And he gave me the grace to. And I remember getting into the car. Thankfully, I wasn't driving. And everything locking up and wanting to scream again. I couldn't bend over. 
Do you feel like that sometimes, just in the living of your week? You just it's enough. I I, I just I, I just heard everywhere. I I I I'm not expecting that, and it happened anyway. And then that happened on top of it, and, and this piles on, and that piles on. And it's like, Lord, don't despair. There are a lot of resources to keep us moving forward in the race to enable us not to quit. The first one I've mentioned is that cloud of witnesses. Think about those guys and gals. Think about them. They're real and they're alive and will be gathered to them one day. Swap notes. The second one is in our text. It says, lay aside every weight. Another running illustration. So in my Probably in my late 20s, I had a young family, and I was still trying to get my couple, three, four miles in several times a week, and I was running out of time with the busyness of a young, growing tribe, and I got those things called heavy hands. Did anybody ever get those heavy hands? They kind of flip over your knuckles, and the knuckles kind of locks them in, and, and so I think I just got some like one-pounders or two-pounders, and I thought, that's a piece of cake. I can run with those. It's going to make things harder and just be more efficient. The time I spend, I get back and do what I'm really supposed to be doing, which is not running. Well, what they did was they, were, uh, they weren't natural to my stride, and they ruined my stride. And I flushed those things really quick. I had to lay them aside. But make no mistake, our biggest problem is not other things that we would tie to ourselves as we try to exercise our bodies. The greatest weight that we should consistently labor to remove according to God's word is the sin that clings so closely. And it's all over. Sin will keep you from running well. It will slow you down in ways that you cannot believe. It will discourage you. It will depress you. It will bring doubts to your mind. Am I really Christ? I'm still doing that? Seriously? But we still do that sometimes, seriously. Practice sin robs of joy faster than anything. It slows down our spiritual pace. So what do we do? What is the remedy? It's right there before you. Lay it aside. Flush it. All of it. Stop picking it up to play with. Renounce it. Run away from it. Substitute something else for it. Call Roman. You can call me. Call a godly friend. Call your mom. Call your dad. Ask for help. Enlist their prayers. Be open and accountable. And watch a little uptick in your sanctification as a result. Stop trying to hide it. You're not hiding it. Read Psalm 139. Read it with understanding. There's nowhere to run or hide, dear ones. The Lord is right there with you in your sin. He's right there. He's in your lap. Think about that. Lay it aside. That's the remedy. Get rid of all the weighty baggage. We are new creations, the Bible says. We are called to behave as such. That is not legalism, by the way. That is not works righteousness. 
That is the dynamic of the Christian life being lived a day at a time. Flush the sin. Here's the third. Run with endurance. That has been a real concern to our author. Recall the previous teaching in chapter 10? In verse 23, we read, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Whoever wrote Hebrews, I'm not completely dissuaded it wasn't Paul. I don't know for sure. It doesn't really matter. could have been. may not be. Whoever it was said, I see that there's some little doubts creeping in with regard to this gospel that you so joyfully received in the midst of your suffering and that wonderful responsive service. Yeah, I saw this, but maybe it's getting a little ragged around the edge, so don't waver. Hold fast the confession of your hope. And then in verses 35 and 36 of chapter 10, he says, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done this, done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. There's that theme again. God has promised you will receive. Press on. And then the last comforting, very comforting part of this, because people who are very weak in their faith and kind of doubt assurance of salvation, they go, oh, well, maybe, maybe I could lose my salvation. And there's a lot of texts that speak against that, but here's one in context, verses 37 through 39 of Hebrews 10. Right there he says, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul is no pleasure in him. Then he says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So he's saying, I know it's hard. And I know there's defeats. The ultimate victory will be here and soon. As one has said, the Christian life is a marathon not a sprint. And indeed it is. And at the end of the day, it will always be the Lord who grants us what we need to endure all the way to the finish line. Philippians 1 verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. So hold on to these things. The means of grace will be essential as we run the life of faith. They are lovely, these means of grace. They are precious. What's the high water mark of your week? I hope you're thinking in the silence of your own soul Sunday. Wednesday night. Well, I mean, you guys get together during the week at all? Is there anything going on? Not on Wednesday? Pagans. Pagans. <laughs> You don't have a Wednesday night prayer service. Now, that's a hard one to do sometimes. I hope you can do that sometime. We initiated one about a year and a half ago, and it's slowly growing. But we just, these are the men's group. The, I know you have a women's group too, right? I was reading your bulletin and your events. These are the means of grace, which means that this is where the things of God can commonly be found, where you can be stretched and bolstered and encouraged, even Sunday school. Yes? Amen? Amen? Please come. Fellowship. Your nose in the book is a means of grace. Your ears hearing the book is a means of grace. Prayers, private and corporate, are a means of grace. The Lord's table 
And it's sweet, sweet reminders of redemption accomplished and applied are the means of grace. It's where the spirit broods and where he hovers and he, he, he intentionally brings life to your soul through these means of grace and it helps to counteract some of the antitheses of means of grace in our culture. We're called to run the race that is set before us, which is my fourth point. Know where you're going. Know where you're going. Eyes on the goal, eyes on the prize, ever and often. And when you're faithfully availing yourself of the means of grace, those reminders will be present. A clearly seen destination helps to keep your pathway straight. How often are you thinking about where you're going? Do you turn your eyes upon Jesus? Do you look full into his wonderful face, finding the things of this world growing strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace? Are you doing that? If not, why not? I was thinking of ways to illustrate this, and I was thinking of that scene recorded for us in Acts, where Stephen is near the end of his sermon, about to be martyred, He's been faithfully preaching the gospel to an audience that we could characterize as enraged. In his eyes, you can tell, are faithfully on the prize. And we read in that account, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he revealed that information to them. And what was their response? They killed him took his life. Think about that. Think about yourself. Is the following text true for you? This is Philippians 3, verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I don't know if it's advancing age. I don't know what it is. I confess my advanced age of 63. I don't feel 63, but I'm 63. I've lived most of my life. That I acknowledge. And everything here is just slowly losing its luster, except this stuff, us together as the saints. Everything else is just, eh, it's okay. I like it, but I like people more than anything now. How about you? The saints and the ain'ts, not yet saints. We hope they will be by our labors and energies. It's part of the race. Andy, you talked about that. We have a message. We're called to share it. It's not just ours. It was given to us. And loving kindness and mercy, and we should be willing and eager and able and prepared to do it for others. Stephen knew what was going on. Do we? Is there anything distracting us in a race? I hope not. Because the race has got a destination. And it's Christ Jesus. Look at verse 2. Don't worry, the rest of this is going to go a lot faster. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Think, please, with me right now in this moment. What is your goal? What does your finish line look like? 
See, I'm a recovering, sort of recovering car guy. It used to be, well, when I get that car, I'm good. My wife will shake her head in exasperation, and she realized he's never good. There's something else he's going to be enamored with and fool with. I'm making headway. Great headway. Great headway, actually. My finish line is Christ. Is yours? I'm trying to spend the time now most usefully for Christ, not that next car project or orchard project or whatever it is. Where are we headed right now with our thoughts, our goals, and desires? How are we preparing to get there and to be useful in the time yet remaining? What are we doing with the allotted time left? Is anything getting in the way? Is something weighing you down? Cast it aside. Flush it. Arthur says our goal is at the finish line. It is Jesus. It is his welcoming arms that will embrace us. I think he's going to be maybe holding a crown. If that's anthropomorphic language or not, it doesn't really matter. It's going to be good. Delightful. It is Christ that we should be longing for. Christ's likeness should be our agenda in the remaining days. It's his opinion of us that should be the first one that we are to consider. Not the mantra of culture, not even your husband or your wife or your kids or your grandkids or anyone else. It's Christ's opinion, first and foremost, as revealed to us in Christ's word. It's in your lap. It's right there. He's not been vague. He's not been unclear. He speaks with perspicuity. You can understand it. I hope we're looking forward to this great day of gathering where our own eyes shall behold him seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This superlative, supreme example of faithful endurance, Christ Jesus, marathoner, par excellence, ultra runner, beyond, beyond, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised its shame. We'll get to that as we close. Is that the view you long for? And if not, why not? Why are we not running this life's race with that on our mind? Well, I feel weak, you say. I feel unworthy. You are weak and you are unworthy, me too. But we can do all things through him who strengthens us. Philippians tells us from the mouth of the apostle. He is our ultimate goal, and he will see to it that we finish our course. As we run face race in the confident expectation of his embrace. So, verse 3, run in the strength of Christ's example. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. A bit of indefinition on endurance. It just simply means the ability to persist. It means to hold on and hold out. The ability to undergo even in the midst of difficulty. To sustain, to tolerate, to practice long-suffering. You could even gloss it as patience. Usually patience under duress. 
in our enduring, we are told to consider him, the one who went before us. And what he endured, what he went through. How often do we do that? Ask ourselves, what really was it that our Lord endured in his brief life on this planet? I'm confident it's impossible for us to fathom it, to really comprehend it. We think of the cross, and we think of the deprivation and the beating, the scourging, the marking, the slapping and spitting, and all those sorts of things, pierced hands, and it's a lot. But the father turning his face away was probably the worst of it for that brief season. That was probably where the Lord really struggled and suffered. And then not to mention 30, 33 odd years of every single waking moment being in this fractured fallen world, having left his divine excellencies. That's tough. We can't understand that. Everything we've ever touched or been acquainted with is tainted by sin. Every bit of it. You know that to be true. And what was it that the world gave to our Lord as he selflessly, sacrificially ministered his saving gospel to them? They gave him their rejection. They gave him lies and slander and ultimately that death we just talked about. It was a form of hostility that you and I would find difficult to comprehend, yet dear Lord Jesus endured it. And guess what? He has risen from the dead. He lives. But our author tells us that the life of our Lord was largely dominated by the hostility of this unfriendly world. And to say that the world is merely unfriendly is inadequate. It was antagonistic and opposed to him. And he endured nevertheless. But endure he did. He had come to die to live a sinless life, to give his life a sacrifice and ransom as payment for the sin of his people, and he did it. Why? That by faith in this sinless one, by the grace of the Lord, his once-for-all sacrifice might be credited to their account that they might live forever and ever and ever at the end of this life. That's why the gospel is called good news. Euangelion means good news, the best news, priceless news, no better news, anywhere to be found, try though you might. So our author is telling us as we wind this up and apply a little bit, it's like he's saying rhetorically, gee, are you struggling a bit with adversity? Are people mistreating you, persecuting you, not doing things exactly the way you would like them to? Here's the answer. Consider what your Lord went through what Christ Jesus endured. And as a result, do not become weary or discouraged. Keep at it. One day at a time. Find strength to do so by keeping your eyes on Christ, his person and work central in your minds. Take courage. Be enervated. Run your race in faith of such things. You know, there's a lot of gospel in the Old Testament. And some of the gospel I find is, is found in Isaiah 53. I'd like to read one verse to you and a couple comments and we'll be done. In Isaiah 53, in this verse, Christ looks beyond the agony of his race and having to endure what he endured. And he looks forward towards the ecstasy. He really does. The agony and then the ecstasy. 
in verse 11, Isaiah 53, tells us this. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, that's code talk for Jesus, my servant, more code talk for Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous. That's us who trust in the servant, Jesus. And he shall bear their iniquities. That's gospel. That's the language of substitution. That's the language of acceptance. The son was satisfied that his anguish of soul would accomplish the purpose of many being accounted righteous. If you know him this morning, that's what a sacrifice did for you. He's given you faith. He's taken your sin. He's granted you his perfect righteousness. This is the, what we call the, the double imputation, the great exchange. Christ was willing to bear our sin at Calvary. There is gospel in the Old Testament and the New. Dear one, sin requires punishment. You cannot pay the acceptable price for your sin. Only Christ can. And he pays it. He bore our sin. It's unimaginable to consider. But he paid it fully. And if you have faith in this righteous sin bearer, this righteous servant, he will produce for you your own personal standing of perfection of righteousness before the Father. Yes, still a sin. Sin doer. Still a sinner. But God will see you in Christ and accept you for the sake of Christ. Isn't that good news? Isn't that great news? It's all done. It's finished. In that sense, the race has already been accomplished for us. We persevere in response, having that gratitude attitude, knowing that we will receive the crown one day. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Well, that may be true for the spoiled, sloppy church in the United States, Thus far, I'm not a prophet. I, I don't know what the future holds, um, but I think we need to be prepared for perhaps shedding our blood. We are now the minority. This is not a Christian nation. Andy, again, we just hit the nail. Boom, right where I've been hitting it at home again and again as of late. We are probably not going to transform our culture shy of an amazing revival of the Lord. And we are praying intentionally for that revival to occur. I hope, I hope it does. I'd love to be a part of one. COVID and all these things have created somewhat of a revival in our own church. We've grown tremendously, as have you. As I look out here, you're growing. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that the, his word is proclaimed here at the hand of our brother Roman. We pray for you. Pray for us. Be encouraged together. These little sister churches will close ranks Run the race of faith with diligence as God gives grace. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are glad to be numbered among the racers. We are glad, Father, that the finish line is secured for us by the work of Christ. And we are so, so very thankful that you have undertaken for us. Without that undertaking, we are lost and undone. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us. Lord, I pray for those uh, this morning who for, uh, from their perspective, much of what's been said is not very clear. Would you just cause them to pause and seek insight from one of the brothers, from me or Andrew or 
or Andy or any one of the leaders from Dean, most of the men here, to have a fruitful discussion about how to trust Christ and what that involves and what's been done, how that is so possible even right now. Oh, Lord, cause him to linger and talk, and we'll be grateful in Jesus' name. Amen.